Good morning. Jesus was a very interesting guy. And we cannot take him too seriously. That can go both ways, right? I mean, we should take it very seriously, and we can never be too serious about Jesus. But we also have to remember that he was a guy. He hung out with guys. He had a wonderful, dry sense of humor. He could say something that would just turn people's perspectives, sometimes humorously and sometimes, you know, in other ways. But the way he portrayed things, he told stories, is just, just phenomenal. And we're going to look at one today that is kind of strange. He liked strange stories because he liked catching people's attention. And today's is no exception. We are going to be in Luke 16. We are going to start at verse 1. Before we do that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit who's here to teach us. We just commit ourselves to learn more about you today. And we thank you for wanting us to know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The chapter begins with a little statement. So he also told his disciples. I underlined also. This is Luke 16, verse 1, but we have to remember the numbers were not there in the original. Luke didn't start writing verse 1, chapter 1, da-da-da-da, right? The, the numbers we put in later so that we could study better, it would be easier to discuss passages with each other instead of saying, you know, on the right-hand page, you know, we could say this chapter, this verse. And sometimes the numbers can throw us off a little bit. So here we think we're starting a new chapter, but it's in the middle of what Jesus is talking about. He also said, in other words, he just finished something and he's moving on to something else. And this story that we're going to look at actually falls between two really important passages and two passages that we're likely familiar with. Luke 15 is the story of the prodigal son. That's a pretty common story. But it's about a father who had two sons, and we call it the prodigal son. Really, it's two prodigal sons. But one of them, the younger said to his dad, I want my inheritance so I can go and spend it. In other words, he said to his dad, I want all the benefits of a relationship with you without having a relationship with you. I want to pretend you're dead. Nice boy, huh? He takes the money. What does he do with it? Well, he invests it wisely. No, he doesn't. He buys Tim Hortons cards and McDonald's cards, and he did, you know, just buys stuff and eats stuff and drinks stuff, and then he's got no more stuff. So that's the story. Now, remember the story. He came running home, and his dad just embraced him back. He didn't care where the money went. He cared about his son. Remember that boy's attitude. He wanted to live in a world in which he benefited from his father without actually having a father. And then we get to this story. So we're in, in, in chapter 16 of Luke, verse 1. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. We're thinking, not good. We're on the rich guy's side, right? He's got this employee. Rumors, he doesn't have proof. He's got rumors that this guy's 
not doing good business. So he called him and said to him, what is it that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. He says, I want to see the books, and by the way, you're fired. Before he even sees the books, you're fired. I heard a rumor, you're gone. The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I like this part. He's honest, at least. He says, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. <laughs> so he's, you know, at my age in life where he figures, I can't start at the bottom and start manual labor. On the other hand, I, 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 I just can't sit there and beg. So what am I going to do? I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their homes. <laughs> He's going to do something that gives them something to fall back on. So summoning his master's uh, debtors one by one, he said to them, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down and quickly write 50. No, no one else will know, right? Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. <laughs> so he said to him, take your bill and write, 50, write 80. So right away we think this is terrible business. He's cutting what people owe his master so that they will like him. And it seems kind of underhanded and sneaky and cheating. Which in one sense it is, but Jesus is telling us a bigger story here. Parables aren't often detail-oriented. They're picture-oriented. So the next sentence really throws us off. The master commended him, or the master commanded the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. <laughs> the, boss, the boss told him he was doing a good job now by throwing away the boss's money. Shrewdness, wisdom. Hmm. Here's Jesus' explanation. I tell you, for the sons of the world are more shrewd dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Those walking in darkness understand relationships better than those that are trying to be religious all the time. Take a look at how people get along. Don't be afraid to learn from others. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their, gener with their own generation than the sons of light. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. Interesting thing he adds there, unrighteous wealth. So now we go back and we see the whole story in terms of, well, this manager knew that his boss was cheating and lying and stealing anyway. It's unrighteous wealth. Hmm. But Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it falls or when it fails, you may, they may receive you into their eternal dwellings. Now again, as business people, we think, no, I, that's, that, no, that must be a bad translation. But what Jesus is saying is, focus on the important thing. Focus on what is important. Is it people or is it wealth? Is it relationships or is it a bank account? Because we let all kinds of things go unnoticed to gain more money. 
Are we willing to let things go unnoticed to have better relationships with people? Unrighteous wealth. There's a lot in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, about wealth. We're just going to go one short passage here in Leviticus 12, I believe. No, I'm sorry. Yep. Leviticus 12. Nope. Leviticus 25. There we go. Is it up on the board? Leviticus 25. This is how, as, as, as they're getting the law before going into the promised land, this is how God wants them to view stuff. Remember, they're coming out of Egypt only with what they can carry. They're being given everything else. He says this, If your brother comes before you and cannot, uh, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. In other words, a guest. He's not saying treat him like he doesn't belong. He's saying just welcome him in like you would any passerby. This is, you know, wilderness culture. This is tribal culture where if someone's wandering through the desert, you, you get them into your house and you feed them. It, it, it's the only way we survive is if we take care of each other in this kind of context, in this culture, in the desert. And so he's saying, you know, don't treat your brother like, you know, treat him as you would anyone else in need. Take no interest from him or profit. He needs 20 bucks. Maybe someday he'll pay you back 20 bucks. Don't ask for 25. No interest. No profit. You bought a nice pizza there for 10 bucks. He wants it. You sell it to him for 10 bucks, not 15. You take care of him, not your money. Take no interest from him nor profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. Fear your God. Well, wait a minute. Aren't we supposed to think about people and money? No. Everything about people and money has to do with God. Carrying on in Leviticus then. Next slide. You shall not lend your money at interest. Now, elsewhere he makes it clear this is for the Jews treating the Jews within this context. He's not saying, you know, if you're running a bank and stuff, but the idea is wealth is there to help people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and be your God. One of the reasons the story in Luke turns our stomachs a little bit is because we think of it just in terms of human relations. We think there's the rich man and there's the manager. And that relationship is all that matters. Scripture never lets us think that way. Scripture always makes it clear that every human relationship includes God above it. And so this manager who seems to be doing something unethical, which, by the way, Jesus tells it, it seems like the boss is pretty unethical anyway. He's not worried about the bank account in the end. He's more concerned with relationships. And yet he's using the boss's money, ill-gotten gains, unrighteous wealth, to build better relationships. And Jesus says, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because Jesus' perspective is quite a bit different in this way. Ellie Maxwell was, um, I think, are we on Maxwell? I don't have all my slides in front of me, so I think, yeah, there we go. Ellie Maxwell was an amazing man. He founded Prairie Bible Institute in Three Hills, Alberta. 
built it up, did, did great guy, amazing stuff, and a good sense of humor. And, you know, people running religious organizations are sometimes worried about where the money comes from. They said to him, what, what do you think about tainted money? Yeah, Ali Maxwell said, the only problem with tainted money is they're tainted enough. Sure, you want it in a lottery? You want it by stealing something? <laughs> we'll build a building with it. We'll use it for God's glory. I love that attitude. Because in the end, it's all God's money anyway, no matter how it ended from one person to the next. Doesn't God own everything? We are living in God's kingdom. We sort of know that if we've been in church for a while. We understand the terminology. But what is a kingdom? Don't think about Charles. Okay? Our examples in the last century of royalty would not apply in the context in which Jesus is teaching. For them, a king was a person who embodied, often embodied God, or embodied some type of superiority, and he ruled everything, and everything that happened, everything that was existed in the land was his. You couldn't go hunting in the forest without his permission because he owned all the animals. And if you killed an animal hunting, he could kill you. I mean, the king was absolute. Do we live in God's kingdom? Do we see God as the owner of everything? Or just 10%? We live in God's world. What does that mean? Just take a look around the room. Everything that you can see, everything that you can touch, everything that you hear, only exists because in the beginning God said, let there be. The wood in the pews, God designed trees with fiber so we could slice them and build boards. The fibers in the carpets, the metal in this wire, everything that we encounter was created by God. And he gave us the wisdom to do stuff with it so we can make nice carpets and, and wires and electricity and all that stuff. It was created by God. The waves that go from my speaker thing up to the speaker thing up there and comes out louder over there. Did we discover that? Yeah, we didn't invent that, though. God created the potential for radio waves in the first six days. He put the power into the atom in the first six days. It's amazing that we learned how to take it out and destroy lots of things, but it didn't surprise God. He made it. It's God's world. We live in God's kingdom. We live in God's world. And we have to understand that also means we live in God's economy. We like the word economy. Somehow we think the word economy is like the world government. Everything is done for the economy. Mm, we worship the economy. There were some funny memes going around uh, during COVID, and here's an example of one of them. <laughs> the dinosaurs see the meteorite hitting the earth, and they think, oh no, the economy. Because didn't we cry a lot about that at the beginning of COVID? What's this going to do to the economy? Well, I mean, seriously, we all want jobs, and we want the government to keep paying the doctors and the policemen. So yeah, there's a point. But we live in God's economy. Economy is just really human relationships. Who has what? Who they give it to? Who they get it from? Where people get stuff? They get it from other people. Where do they get the stuff? Well, they get it from other people. The economy is relationships. And God is sovereign over those. Doesn't mean we always obey him. Doesn't mean we live by his rules. 
but we are living in God's economy, and we need to see it that way. We need to see it that way. There is a passage we've looked at before, and we will look at again. Because, you know, it's one of those things you can read a thousand times, and then one day God just says, that's what you need to know. And, and it's these two verses in Isaiah that jump out at me, and they're very interesting. Isaiah 53, the, the passage that goes in depth about the suffering of the Messiah. And Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. That's a destructive verse. It's a violent verse. Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. So when we look at that verse and we think, how atrocious, and we can picture Jesus on the cross, and we can picture the price, the sacrifice, and we think, wow, what forced that? Why did he have to do that? Must be because of those really bad sinners that are in jail. <clears throat> you know, the mass murderers and the, the terrible people, the drug dealers. I was going to say Maple Leafs fans, but I've run that one to a... Why did Jesus die? The very next verse, Isaiah tells us why. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned, everyone to his own way. That is the atrocious act that meant Jesus had to go to the cross. Not our violence, our pure selfishness. The real problem with humanity, eh, we're like sheep. We just wander. Eat some grass. Oh, look, there's more grass. <laughs> Let's try that. Do, 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 do. We wander all day long. Oh, there's some more grass. Pick our head up, look around. I have no idea where I am. I think I'm lost. Oh, there's some grass. Just pointless. Living a pointless life. Adam and Eve were created in God's image to do amazing things. And we see hints of it in human culture. Architecture, art, beautiful music, wonderful inventions. We see glimpses of what humanity can do, but it's surrounded by such atrocity, by people who just live their lives by, ooh, I think I want this today, ooh, I want this today, ooh, 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 ooh. and we're living pointless lives. Because we've lost sight of the fact that it's God's kingdom, and it's God's world. That's why Jesus died. Because you and I, we're living pointless lives. We were created to be in the image of God so that when people look at us, they go, oh, I know your creator. Do they see that in us? Isaiah 53, so wake up. Those two images we rarely put together. It's so easy to say he's a sinner. That's why God is judging the world. But we need to go, I am the problem. I'm the one who doesn't see things from God's perspective. And let's keep in mind what this was all about. Jesus died on the cross. We know that. He was tortured. He slashed his back, put thorns on his head. He endured humiliation. <laughs> this beautiful creature who had sat on the throne of heaven was being spat at by humans. And he let them. 
He let them insult him, and he let them nail him to a cross, and he let them stab a spear into his side. Because Jesus, the Son of God, was intent on restoring the relationship between the Creator and the creation, us, his people that were made in his image. So I want to just toss this out at you. In order to restore that relationship, if Jesus had to die, what do we have to do? Can we give less? Because we're called to die to ourselves. Die to sin. Die to the world. Die to the flesh. So that we can live to God. Jesus died to make a potential relationship between us and God. We have to do the same. We have to do the same. Colossians. Paul's writing to a church in Colossae, and he words it this way. If then you have been raised with Christ, and think of this image. We've had some baptisms here lately. We've got some more coming up. It's really exciting to see people making that symbolic gesture, and that symbolic gesture is death. Under the water, the old self dies. Up from the water, living a new life. That's the symbolism. Died with Christ, now living for Christ. Colossians, Paul says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Are your, is your mind on heavenly things? Are you living in God's kingdom? Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Does that mean we all have to go sit at the top of a mountain and meditate? Absolutely not. We still drive our cars, and we like the cars we drive. We worked hard to get the money to buy them. That's okay, because we honor God all the way. We know it's God's car. I'm going to drive it. As, you know, how would Jesus drive? That better be how you drive. Yeah, because it's, it's God's world, and he wants us to enjoy stuff. That's why he made chocolate and rainbows and whiskers on kittens and, you know, whatever else Julie Andrews liked. <laughs> he wants us to enjoy it because he loves us. But we have to enjoy it as a gift from the creator, not as my possession. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. And the next slide, you have died. You have died. See, the whole point of recognizing Jesus on the cross in my place is I'm saying, okay, I'm there too. I'm crucified with Christ. I am declaring the old dead person gone. And I need to be reborn in God. For you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you want glory? Sometimes we think about our funerals. The nice things we want people to say about us. You know, the, the things we get to leave for our children after us. And those aren't bad. But what's better is knowing the legacy we will leave when Christ returns. Our life will be revealed in him in glory. And then that other stuff won't really matter so much. Won't really matter so much. So we have to look at it differently. We live in God's kingdom. 
The only way we can do that is if we abandon our own kingdom. Go to the next slide, please. Oh, wait a minute. I jumped a slide. C.S. Lewis. <laughs> Another wonderful twisted sense of humor that just puts words out there. And he, he, he said it this way. Just, just read that for a sec. C.S. Lewis is saying, we don't need to try harder. We don't need to try to be better. It's not the point. We are not merely imperfect creatures who must be improved. We are rebels who must lay down our arms. We must go to the victor, lay our arms at his feet, and say, everything I thought about my kingdom is done. I give it up. What I was fighting for is not worth fighting for. I give it up. Some very good people decide they want to live their lives better and, and honor God through it. Okay, okay, but what we need to understand is what you need to do is give up your life. Lay down your arms. Stop the fight you thought you were fighting for God and find out what he wants in his kingdom, in his world, in his economy. Am I right on the next slide then? Sorry, I got my slides mixed up a little bit this morning. What's the next one? There we go. Again, we're living in God's kingdom, but that means we must abandon our own. Now, we technically live in a constitutional monarchy, so we have a king and a prime minister. And I heard about a kid singing a little kid's song a long time ago. He is Lord, but I'm prime minister. He is Lord, but I'm prime minister. So sure, God's God, just like King Charles is our king. How does that affect your life? Gives us things to giggle at. Are you conscious of being his subject and his servant? <laughs> can't have a relationship with God. You can't say, God is the king of my life for an hour Sunday morning and then live the rest of the week as if he's just over in some building in England getting into trouble. And I'm left on my own to do what I want. We are living in God's kingdom. We must abandon our own. We're living in God's world. We must not attribute it to anyone else. God owns everything. So for this person who was a manager working for a rich guy, God owned all the wealth that rich guy had in his bank account. It was God's money. Whatever happened to it, it was God's. Because that person was created by God. So when you look at that person, remember who God is in that picture. You have to see God above all those relationships. We're living in God's world. We must not attribute it to anyone else. It is God's. We're living in God's economy. God decides how wealth should be used and what relationships should be like. Therefore, we must... You tell me. The question in this story that Jesus told us is this. Do we use relationships to grow our wealth? Or do we use our wealth to grow relationships? I respect a lot of really good business people. I couldn't have been one. I just don't have the brains for it. But it does send shivers down my spine sometimes when people talk about networking. 
Because some people I know, when they talk about networking, they mean they want to turn every relationship into a business transaction that they will benefit from. Ooh. I don't think that's what God had in mind for relationships. In fact, I know it isn't. Do we use relationships to grow our wealth? Or do we use our wealth to grow relationships? Are we living in God's kingdom? Are we living in God's world? Are we living in God's economy? Because all we like sheep have gone astray. And we've made a mess of things. But Jesus died to restore us back to what we were created to be. And the only way we can get that, the only way we can receive that, the only way we can participate in that is also to die. To die to the old self. To die to the world and its desires. This story of Jesus was not giving us license to be dishonest at work. It was telling us that at work, make sure you look beyond your boss and know who you're really working for. When you invest for the future, make sure you know who actually owns that stuff. Use it to his glory. Absolutely. Enjoy it. Leave it for your kids. Oh, yeah. In the name of God. As it's part of God's kingdom. As it's part of God's world. And as it's part of God's economy. So we close with a quote from Deuteronomy. I'll ask the worship team to come up. Prayer teams will also come up, and they'll be gathered at two sides in the back. They would love to pray with you about anything. They'll pray with you for family members, for yourself. They'll just listen as you pray if you want that. And if you've never chosen to be in God's kingdom, if you've never understood that Jesus died on the cross directly for you because you had gone astray, but he's willing to restore you, he's willing to rebuild you, in his image. If you've never come to that point of knowing that you needed Jesus to save you from yourself, our prayer teams would love to pray with you about that. They have a passion for helping people find their loving creator. And they'll pray with you. And they'll help you understand what that means. Deuteronomy 8. You shall remember the Lord your God. It is He who gives you the power to get wealth. He has given you the brains, the abilities. No one is a self-made man. <laughs> the question is, using your brains and abilities for whom? In whose kingdom? Father, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for the death of Christ to bring us life. We ask you to continue to build your body, to build the relationships of your people so that we can strengthen each other and walk in your ways. Let me thank you in Jesus' name.